0: are live welcome back to the flat out rc podcast the podcast that talks all things radio control flight we're talking helis planes and drones and everything in between if there is anything in between my name is andrew sill coming to you from melbourne australia down under as they say well got a good good guest today uh ian howard from desert aircraft australia is the man uh those of you that are living in australia you would know the man yeah he's the founder of desert aircraft australia the the hobby business that sells extreme flight pilot rc compa desert aircraft engines of course all high quality gear props servos you name it but always great stuff so we're gonna have a chat with him He also happens to be uh the manufacturing arm of desert aircraft that makes the uh ignition module so they he makes the ignition modules from here in Queensland, Australia, and supplies their aircraft over in the US that and they go all around the world. So stay tuned for that. But before we get into our chat with Ian, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. <music> what has been happening around the traps well? It's interesting to see around the world how different countries have responded to the COVID outbreak and how some countries are allowing model flying. Here in Australia, the situation is not too bad for, I think, everyone outside of the state of Victoria where we're currently still locked down. So that has been really the story of the year, uh, which has not been great. Uh, We're all getting sick of it. We know that. And events cancelled. We'll look to 2021 now and hopefully we'll have a vaccine or something that will uh, sort this COVID situation out. But we're looking good in Victoria. I reckon we're maybe two or three weeks away from potentially getting back to the flying field. So if you uh, operate a flying club in the state of Victoria, start getting ready. Uh, see if you can get permits to go out and cut the strip and all that kind of stuff. I know that my local club uh, has done an excellent job in maintaining the field whilst uh, we've all been locked down, and it is in pristine condition, ready for us to all go for a fly. Uh, no doubt there'll be some restrictions when we get back to in, get back to flying. Interesting to see that the the, the our COVID numbers here in Australia are relatively low compared to other places in the world. We had Gurno Brookman on the podcast last week from Austria, and it seems like. Uh, They're relatively free, they can all go flying despite having 700 or so cases a day. If we had 700 cases here in Australia, the whole place would be shut down. So, uh, taking a very conservative route here in Australia, but that's uh, what's happening. Now, a little thing I wanna talk about is uh, that sort of came to my attention a couple of times now, um, thanks to my local flying club down here in Victoria, the uh, P&Darks Club Club, out of Pakenham. Uh, Zoom calls for club meetings. Now, that's if you don't know what a Zoom call is by now, well, you've been living under a rock, but basically uh, a mechanism to allow people to connect online through voice and video, like a video chat. And uh, a lot of clubs are moving to these Zoom-based meetings since we can't congregate together. But I think they're actually a great way to go. Uh, uh, They just had the um, AGM, Annual General Meeting at the P&Darks Club, and they held it over Zoom. and that was done extremely well. Uh, they've got their IT guy, David, there that uh, is doing an excellent job in making these Zoom calls happening. Now, what was the result of having a Zoom call for an AGM? Well, instead of having, say, 30 people turn up to an AGM, they had 60 members online. And that means more people can engage with the club, understand what's going on. There's just a flow-on range of, uh, of uh, consequences as a result of moving to a format that encourages people to get on is easier for people to get on, on board with rather than driving to a location, sitting there for an hour or whatever. Um, running the meeting, no doubt, would be easier face-to-face, but it is an excellent way of getting people connected. It was, look, you could actually have a physical club meeting and Zoom, Zoom it at the same time, live stream it. And I think it's a great way of getting the club. So consider that. There's even functionality in Zoom where um, they, were, they were having like a vote. You can press a button that says hands up and they can, you know, vote on different decisions and everybody can have their say. And the more people that can have the say in the club, the better off it is. Often you see people jumping up and down saying, "Oh, well, we didn't get a say. Well, you didn't turn up to the meeting. That's why. But now you could run a zoom meeting at any point in time on a weekend and an evening or something and, and people would just get on no matter where they are through their smartphone, through a telephone, if people don't have you know aren't internet savvy, that kind of thing. You know there's some people that say that oh, it, it, it excludes some people that might not be computer savvy, but the reality is that they're, they're the minority now. You're talking maybe five people in the club that might not be able to do that. Um, so where do you draw the line? Uh, even though they can connect via a phone. So consider it. Zoom calls for club meetings, great way to get your members involved in the decision-making processes and keep them informed as to what's going on and, uh, at the club as well. well. Now to the special guest being Ian Howard. Now, Ian's been a guy that uh, I've tried to get onto the podcast for a while He's been a really busy man during this COVID period. A lot of sales happening up at his store, Desert Aircraft Australia, located in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction at the start of the show, Ian runs the Desert Aircraft Australia business, but uh, as the Desert Aircraft name suggests, he's involved in the manufacturing of the ignition modules for Desert Aircraft. He's He's been an electronics uh, buff for for quite a while. And uh, so knew the guys at Desert Aircraft from the start and got involved in making these ignition modules, which he does an excellent job at. He actually designs them and and manufactures them. I visited Ian and had a chat with him about the ignition module manufacturing. And I went up there, oh, it was probably two years ago now. Happened to be in Brisbane for some work, had my cameras with me, and I shot, shot a video with him. Unfortunately, I lost a lot of the footage because I had a corrupted hard drive. Um, before I could actually produce the video on the business. But I I managed to salvage uh, one interview that I had with him uh, around um, the manufacturing ignition module. So jump onto YouTube. So Ian, uh, been in the hobby for a long time, running the business for a long time now as well. Uh, Great modeler. So anyway, enough of my yapping. Let's go over and have a chat with Ian Howard. Well, it's my pleasure today to have a great guy, a guy that I've spent some time with. His name is Ian Howard, the man behind the Business Desert Aircraft Australia. Ian, thanks for joining me.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Well, it took us a bit of time to get this podcast happening. You've been a busy, busy man, and we're (laughs) going to talk all about how busy you are at the moment. But before we get into it, a lot of people know you as the guy, the man, the owner of Desert Aircraft Australia one of the best hobby stores uh, going around in Australia. But before we get into the business, let's share the story behind the man, Ian Howard, and starting with where your journey in aero modelling be- um, began, where where
1: did you get this bug for aero modelling? Well, actually, I flew control line as a kid, very unsuccessfully. Um was fortunate enough to go to a high school that, had um, like summer school, not 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 during the holidays, but like the last few weeks of school, they dedicate half the days to doing other stuff like sport or hobbies or whatever else. And I offered a one of the science teachers offered uh, doing uh, control on aircraft, and I did that. So that's I guess that's where the journey began, and that's where the the, the taste started. But um, yeah, back when I was a kid, and back then. Electronics was always my hobby. That's what I used to do—amateur radio and, hobby, and electronics. But I, I, I had a taste of uh, of model aircraft then, and it was always there in the background.
0: Yeah, something you just can't shake. So then, so you started Control Line, and then did you do the male thing and have this break and got into things like cars, and then found women and that kind of thing, or what happened after your Control Line days?
1: <laughs> well, Control Line was only ever at school. It was with a couple of mates that also did it at school. Um, yeah, cars. I bought a money pick called an MG. I had um, one of those as well. It kept me very poor. Oh, uh, tell me. <laughs> well, well, what what model did you have? I had a 63 MGB. Okay,
0: yeah. I had a 73 yeah, MGB. My, I was born into an MG family. My dad was into them. And, and I was fortunate enough when I turned 18, he gave me an MG. But it was
1: yeah. oh wow! It's a
0: long story behind it though. I think part of it was that he really wanted it as well, and my mum said, "Give it to him." <laughs> so we actually had three MGs in the family at one point in time. Gee.
1: Well, my father begged me not to get it. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I had a very reliable Holden Kingswood. Please yeah. don't buy that MG. Yeah. He was um, uh, an A-grade mechanic, although at the time he was uh, working as a toolmaker. Uh, and he knew what he what he was in for if I bought an m g and that was many weekends working on cars yes, sure. <laughs> so, and and thus we did, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. and so then you got into back into flying wind um, it was many years afterwards, so I as I said, my hobby as a kid was electronics. I did electronics as a business, I worked for a a company in Sydney doing industrial electronics and was there for many years and they wanted to open up a uh, an office in Queensland. And At the time, I wanted to get the hell out of Sydney. I'm not sure why, but just had enough of the place. So I put my hand up and said, I'll do that, and they were crazy enough to let me. And so I started this new business in Brisbane, and I was nervous and anxious and pacing the hallway. And my wife at the time said to me, you've got – uh, a model plane kit in the cupboard. Why don't you just get that out and build it? And of course, she regretted that. Yeah, I was about it, it to say, just, it's her fault. It just overtook my life. It's just... <laughs> so um, I end up joining the local club and, um, yeah, she never saw me again, you know, off I went. Now, what was the model? Who can we blame for that model? Oh, uh, it was, I can't remember the brand, but it was a 15-size trainer and um had a 15 size os rc motor and i very quickly learned that 15 size and trainer uh, (laughs) don't go together it was three channel so um it had no ailerons it was just rudder elevator and throttle and a couple of the local club guys which was the larks in south of brisbane back then um Took me under their wing and they could make that plane do anything, including rolling circles and all sorts of things. Um, but very quickly, I learned that it wasn't a great trainer and I went and bought one of the traditional 46 size trainer ARFs and went from there. Yeah.
0: What year are we talking roughly? Give us a time
1: frame. I had a feeling you could ask this question and I was trying to think of it earlier tonight. Um, I think it must have been around 1990, 91.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds about right. Now, the and then. Mm. So you kept on progressing. What was your next step after the, the, the trainer sort of era?
1: Oh, you know the the trainers, and then the low wing, and then anything that went a bit fast, we tried playing with. Um, yeah, just the typical group of mates. We did all sorts of things back then. You know, pre-internet, um, pre-YouTube, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, by modeling magazines from the USA and and um, the UK and Europe. And things that caught my attention were things like the, the giant scale was always something that I thought that's cool. And I remember um, buying one edition of uh, Model Airplane News that had a picture of Chip Hyde on the front, yeah. which had a, a 30% ultimate flown at the Tournament of Champions. Yeah, yeah And right. I looked at that. I've still got that magazine, actually, in mm-hmm. my drawer. I, I looked at that picture and said, I'm going to own one of them. I want one of those. See,
0: do you know, you know what the funny thing is? And we aeromodellers are all the same in this regard, I think. We can see a model, yep. a photo of a model, and fall in love with it and have this deep seated need to ha- want to have that model. I- I'm the same as you. A- absolutely. I- I've been looking at a, um, which is really odd because, you know, I'm a-, I'm a bit of an aerobatics guy, but I've got this American magazine from uh, a few years ago, and there's a, a King Air, you know, twin King Air. Oh, yeah. That yeah. a guy, but a big giant sky, and it's electric, right? But. It looks phenomenal. I go, that is just a beautiful, it, like the shape of it is just <laughs> absolutely beautiful. And, and, and you just look at it. And I think everybody that has bought an airplane, especially a giant scout plane, has fallen in love with it from seeing a photo or, uh, kind of thing. But We've got vivid oh, imaginations,
1: I say. Yeah, genuinely. So like there's, there's plenty of occasions where you look at an aircraft and you think that is just cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I want one.
0: Yeah, 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 and and you can you know what I've noticed I, when I talk to friends and they tell me about a model, I sit there and go, I know you're going to get one now. I can tell by the the, the look in your eye <laughs> that yep. you're you're playing it down, but you are totally and utterly in love with <laughs> this model, even yep. though it's the tenth Piper Cub that you've got in your hangar. It's a different size though, this one, and i was like, it is just mm-hmm. totally totally irrational behaviour, but. uh this is our problem. So, okay, so you,
1: you, you did end up getting into giant-scale
0: planes, right?
1: I did. Um, a few of my mates were, at the time, buying um, model design. I don't even remember that company, Ernie, yeah. uh, in uh, South Australia that was uh, making basically cut foam core wings and fiberglass you know, cow fuselages and things. A bit of work to putting them together, but few of the mates we were uh, were building those and I used to help them with those. We're going back to days when Zenoa you know, G62 was the biggest motor yeah. you could think about. Um, particularly in Australia, that was yeah you know, there was very limited choices. Um, but I <clears throat> I, you know, I had my heart set on an ultimate and there's no there was no kit you could buy. Were, you, you couldn't buy a kit. Um, particularly in Australia, but even then I think Chips kit was originally a Godfrey design um so i ended up buying some plans and made a plug and a mold and made fiberglass uh, ultimates we made a few of them
0: yeah
1: Uh had a couple of mates that had them i had a couple myself because the first one i did a spectacular low pass inverted and (laughs) did a whoopsie at an air show with a crowd smoke on it was spectacular one well done loved it so much i had to build another one (laughs) yeah That's how that was my first giant scale model, and that, that's how it came about. It was, I, I made the plug, I made the mold, and made it myself. That's awesome. And how did it fly? Very average. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, it bit, was it a bit
0: on the heavy side? Do you reckon?
1: No, it's now it flew well. Uh, in fact, the last one I, I I built and flew for some years um I sold to a guy and he flew it for years afterwards the top wing did eventually depart one flight and he put it on the deck okay but um bipes are interesting characters bipes are different to you know, I guess my passion would be more monoplane aerobatics these days bipes i find twitchy less precise so, yeah um but they they're show planes that they have a presence about them and that's what that's what I really liked about it was that this thing is awesome you know uh, a seventy-inch ultimate was was an enormous plane back in those days. Not so much these days.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm with you in regards to the biplane thing. Uh, I I think they look great in the air, but most people that I talk to that fly them say that they are yeah not not as not as not as precise as a monoplane. But mm. there's a couple of things that put me off by like. I love the look of the biplane, but I just don't want to own one. I just don't want to go to the field and have to deal with two sets of wings whilst I'm setting up, <laughs> even though I know everybody's made it easier and all that kind of stuff. But it's just like oh, a plane can have two wings and it's easier to set up than having four wings to, to set it all up. But apparently, like, a mate of mine's got the, uh, the Pilot RC pits, which he got yep. new and... I, am, I said to him, I want to do a video on it. We're going to do a video once he maidens it after this whole COVID situation. We'll see. We'll get his feedback because he actually had a Hang-A-9 Christensen Eagle and he didn't really like how that flew and now it'd be interesting to see how the Pilot RC, but um, I do another friend who's got a Pilot RC pits and he does like it, but anyway. So, okay, so you built this... I this, this, uh, uh, question about that, the ultimate you built. What about the wings? Did you... Did you design the wings as well and, and you know, cut them out of foam or what did you do?
1: Yeah, so they, they, um, the original Bob Godfrey design, because that was what I ended up with, was a set of plans from Bob Godfrey, which is a guy in the US from many years ago. Um, he used foam ribs and the traditional build-up wing, but with using foam ribs yeah. that were like quite thick, like 10 or 12 millimeters thick. Okay. Um, I wasn't going to do any of that. That's just... Too much work so we just cut foam cores out laid uh carbon fiber under balsa sheeting, uh and vacuum bagging like i was fortunate i had a couple of mates that were uh talented when it came to uh, composite materials so i learned enormous amounts from them and yeah we built ourselves vacuum bag systems modified old refrigeration compressors, and my you know I, I made electronic controls for adjusting the pressure and, and maintaining it and yep uses vacuum bag foam cores and um lay out the rest of the fiberglass. yeah
0: yeah that's awesome and then uh what was the next step well did you start competing in imac as well in those days or
1: not with that um so that was just a show plane i used to go around um took it to in one year it was it was interesting that um the story of and the one of the officials once uh when i was down there with it when it was on idling on the um flight line about to take off he pointed out and said who certified that that that's not safe you can't go in the air and yeah it had been a model that had been flying for five years at that stage and never missed never hiccup and it was just one of those things where it highlighted how in the giant scale area a lot of people had no understanding of what was good and what wasn't good you know so um what i ended up doing was um I think the next step was a visit to the USA to Las Vegas at the Tournament of Champions and seeing some of the cool stuff there, getting involved with uh, Fibre Classics, which became Composite Af, Andreas Gitz. and, uh, yeah, got some of his models. And, and that's what I played with, uh, IMAC with, with some Composite AF models.
0: So at this point in time, it, it, it's – I'm safe to say that it's at that point in time you did make the move to the industry after the Tournament of Champions kind of uh, visit and that kind of thing. Would I be correct in saying that?
1: Yeah, it came a little bit after the first visit to the Tournament of Champions. So that's where I met Dave Johnson, who's the owner of Desert Aircraft in the USA. And at the time, he was the USA distributor for 3W engines out of Germany. Um, and I had my, my ultimate. I had a 3W70 twin. And one of the visits to the uh tournament of the champions dave was having his fair share of issues with the way 3w were conducting their business he, he wasn't having a good time he was contemplating doing his own engines and i just quietly mentioned to him that yeah if you bank engines i, I wouldn't mind tinkering with the ignition system Yeah, electronics is my game and and it's, this is my hobby i wouldn't mind having a tinker and yeah out of the blue 12 months later i think dave contacted me and said mm, you better start because we're going to make our own engine so do you want to make an ignition and that's how I got into the business initially it was a uh, part-time business making the ignitions for desert aircraft engines
0: yeah so what you were doing manufacturing yourself at home or
1: um... I was it was a it was a home business I had a full-time other business doing industrial electronics I was in the motor control equipment um, and the ignitions was just something i did at night and on weekends and it slowly grew and grew and grew and then we got involved in um fiber classic stroke composite half so it grew a little bit more and that eventually uh we made the decision one day that um i'm going to go from one to the other and and walked away from my other business and started desert aircraft full-time That's a big move <laughs>
0: starting a hobby business now so okay so you well, so, so the name Desert Aircraft Australia was that really there from the start,
1: as a result of the work you do with Desert Aircraft, or how did that come? Yeah, out? look, um, I guess I was cheeky. I, yeah, you know, I I was, yeah, doing the stuff for Desert Aircraft, and when I started selling, yeah, you know, his engines and other stuff uh, here in Australia, I said I might just use your name. Yeah, why not? And he was cool with that. Dave Johnson is like. The nicest person in the world you'll ever meet he is a superhuman being and he taught me lots of stuff about customer service and how you look after people and exceeding expectations and things like that he, he just lives and breathes doing everything well and uh yeah when i think about sometimes in an awful situation i think to myself what would dave do because he is a, a great person and he's you know, back when I was just simply a customer of his buying 3W engines from him and stuff like that, he always exceeded my expectations. He Always went above and beyond. So yeah, he's just a, a fantastic person. And, and that's how, yeah, if that was my guiding force with the whole thing. So I used his name. <laughs> well, I think you'd be
0: proud of what you've built because I think when, when, when I mentioned the word desert aircraft, Australia to anybody. Nobody has uttered, uh, muttered, uttered, muttered, or uttered or muttered a bad word about DA Australia. That they all say the same thing: the service is phenomenal, and we know that the, you know, a lot of the products that you sell are, are quality products as well, which helps. But the service is is the biggest thing. Actually, you're you're so good that we you know mates of mine they'll ring up and they will say, "Oh, I just sat on the phone for an hour with Ian from DA, and I see they're saying." Why are you wasting the man's time for an hour? Why he has, he, has, he has work to do. You just held him up for an hour. Don't do it again, <laughs> all right? Like right? He'll give you the advice and let him go. He's a busy man. But anyway, uh, so you, okay, so you started doing the ignitions. Of course, then you were selling the DA motors as well, and then you've got the comp yep. planes coming in as well, all right? Yep. What happens after that? Well, so what, what are we talking, early 2000s here?
1: Uh, Yes, it must have been, uh, yeah, 99, 2000. Um, I think actually, yeah, 97 we started, um, like the part-time stuff. Um, Well, yeah, when we made the decision to do it full-time, it was still a home-based business. So we were pretty cheeky from that point of view. The costs were minimal. But very soon it developed into, okay, somebody wants to buy a plane from me um and an engine from me i want to be able to supply them everything else that's good to go in it so that's where we just started building up you know the sort of stuff we stocked in the shop um yeah you know, if you buy a plane from me i can give you everything you need to go in it You don't have to get it from me but you everything you need i can supply for you and it just grew and grew and grew like you know, quality exhaust systems out of germany you know decent propellers out of uh Mezlik in czechoslovakia uh, it was it was all about providing some quality product to go with your you know your, your high end plane, um, and it just kept on growing.
0: Yeah, uh, and and you've you've really um, kept maintained that philosophy all the way through. That you know I say to people if you go onto a DA website, every product's going to be a winner in their category. You're getting the best of the best, and I think what you've you've done is attracted the avid modeler that appreciates the quality as well. Um, you know that, uh, And I, I think that's held you in good stead, though, from a business perspective. Actually, Mike O'Reilly said this to me. He said, I said, why has your business lasted so long? And he said, because we never played at the bottom end of the market. We played at the middle middle side was sort of where we were to upper side in, in certain areas, right? But never go down to the cheap, cheap, cheap stuff because you'll never survive, which I think you learned when you got into
1: FPV drones, didn't you? Oh, absolutely! Um, <laughs> an interesting learning exercise. Yeah. Um, it's playing at the bottom end of the market is just a loser's game. Nobody wins. Nobody can win at that end. Everyone's struggling to make a couple of bucks, and nobody's making any.
0: because uh, yeah, I always say it flows down the chain. That if if you're paying peanuts for a model, then the manufacturer is making peanuts, which means he's going to try to cut costs. And it's just this downward spiral of just rubbish upon rubbish. And, you know, if that's your thing and, you, and you, you value rubbish in the price that you paid for the model, knock yourself out, you're not going to buy from DA. And I think that you've stayed in your lane really, really well and and every brand that's come along. Now, so DA was there, Compaf was there. And then I think one of the biggest biggest wins for you is really the Extreme Flight, um, becoming the Extreme Flight distributor because we know they've sort of been at the pinnacle of um, aerobatic balsa models for for. You know at least the last 10 years how did that relationship come about
1: um struggling to remember um obviously there was a good relationship between extreme flight and desert aircraft in the usa as well so that has actually helped us a few on a few occasions where we've you know managed to take on brands that either desert aircraft in the us was doing or had a relationship with like we're selling engines to them um so the, the opportunity came up, and uh, we, yeah, we were we were quick to grab at it because it fit in with our philosophy. I mean, to take my hat off to the Extreme Flight crew; they work really hard at providing constant high quality products. It's not easy to do, and 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 they do it, and so it fit in with our philosophy quite well. Uh, we, we we it's not for everybody. If you if you want the cheap end of the deal, we don't have what you want, um, but. If you want the quarry in the deal, we do.
0: Yeah. See, just on that, my personal opinion, and and my my uh good old mate Ido Segev said this to me one day. He was talking about servos. And he said, Well, actually he was talking in general, he said, We we get into this hobby to have fun, and there's nothing worse than having a model that doesn't fly well or it's not reliable. That's just not fun. Yeah. And he said, I don't know why people would want to skimp on. Spending the money on something that they're going to have fun with. Okay, we all have budget limits, but I always say we have a choice in this hobby. You can go and own a hundred rubbishy planes, or you can go and own ten good, good quality planes. Okay, maybe not yeah. ten. Maybe the the numbers might look. You know, you can have twenty rubbishy planes or have five good planes. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I'll always take quality. Everything that I've got in my hangar is is good a good airframe with good running gear in it. And I think part of it for me is when I go to the field, I don't want to have any problems. So I'm going to get something that's reliable and that's going to work. And when you know that your model is going to work the same way every single time, you enjoy it and you fly well. It's just, it's a great experience. So
1: there's nothing more disappointing than watching somebody, you know, often somebody you've been trying to guide with doing something a little bit better, but yeah, is driven by price or driven by, you know, well, I'm not doing it that way, to come away disappointed weekend after weekend because things haven't gone well when, when it could be easier. So, yeah, our philosophy has always been to guide people to, to do it with quality and and with and do it well because you have a better time. You're here for the fun. As you said, this is your hobby, is your fun. At the end of the weekend, you want to have had a heap of fun flying, not being at the pits, pulling things apart, flipping motors, trying to get them to run, you know.
0: It's, it's painful, just, you know, that pulling the... Pulling the spinner off, then to pull the prop off, then to pull the cowl off, and then, then you got to do it all in like undoing the the, the prop bolts on the big gasses. Does my head in, and it's like ah, oh, just <laughs> even just to tune the damn thing is just a pain in the butt to pull things on and off. But, but you probably learn that you know there's some people that will just never learn and they'll argue the point. Like I love it when people say to me, "Oh, they're all all the models are made in the same factory." Now I sit there and I say, "Oh well, I've I've literally." You've literally visited him. I've, yep. I've visited the factory and I've I've met the guy. I know I know who builds the extreme flight models. He he bought me dinner. He's he's a, a lovely guy, Bear. We love his name's Bear. Well, this is his Australian name. And we love him. And he gave me-I've got an extreme flight t-shirt. He, he, I think I'm an unofficial member of the Extreme Flight team. But um but he's a great bloke. And I can tell you now, he ain't got any capacity to be making rubbish rubbish for <laughs> I, I was gonna say he's, Hobby King. I'm gonna say Hobby King. He's not building I've met I met a guy that made models for Hobby King, and the number one question people ask when you go to China is who makes for Hobby King, and they all say, oh, lots of little people, lots of little people all over the place. And I met a guy that was making a plane for Hobby King, and he was flying his Hobby King plane, and it was a, and a friend of mine flew it. And I said, how did it fly? He said, hopeless. It was like it was the worst <laughs> thing ever. Actually, the next flight, the owner took it off, and the um, the battery fell out of the plane, pulled the canopy off, and the plane hit the deck, and it was almost like great. Look like an Esky <laughs> lid by the end of it, but anyway. But um, okay. So extreme flight, you've you've been there, and I think the uh, the next the, the next competitor to extreme flight, you've sewn up as well, uh, relatively recently. Even though I think you had them early on, which was Pilot RCs back in the fold with DA, and yep. and just off air, we were just mentioning how great their airframes have have become. out, especially probably last what do you reckon four years? Do you reckon it's been where? They really Absolutely. moved ahead in leaps and bounds with with the with their models and um producing some beautiful aircraft now.
1: Tony's passionate, uh, very passionate about what he produces. Um and he has gone ahead leaps and bounds, both in yeah, you know, quality of manufacturing and quality of design. You know, it's that they are a real contender for the the top tier level these days.
0: Well, it's yeah. just, it's interesting. I've met Tony Tan from Pilot RC and Chris Hinson from Extreme Flight, and their philosophies are very similar in that, um, well, t- Tony said to me uh, last year, you know i said why'd you start a business tony and he said "Ah, oh, i started flying model planes and kept on crashing and and i thought if i start making my own planes then i'll have an endless supply and this and my wife thought that was a good <laughs> idea i didn't want it he said he said I, I didn't want to i couldn't keep on buying model airplanes to tell my wife had to spend more money on model airplanes so i started a business to make them and but he he <laughs> always went down that aerobatic route and he was always looking at quality and chris on the other hand when i when i had a chat with him and i do want to get chris on the podcast was uh he was making model aircraft like you were, and 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 so he was really really into it and building the best and the lightest models they can. He used to weigh every piece of balsa before he mm. put it into the plane and that kind of kind of stuff. So he was again working at that that quality ended and and that's what they ended up producing as well. Even though he'll tell you that he had he had some trials and tribulations very early. He, he had a whole container load that he pretty much threw out one of the first container yep. loads. Um, yep. and he wasn't happy with the quality, so he did something about it and. Um, and that's, I think we we have to thank the likes of Tony and Chris for for taking the plunge, and even yourself. You know, I, I admire people that start hobby businesses. I had a crack at it for a little while, but um, but you know, it's a tough. So time. there's no money in it, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I worked out that pretty quickly. But um, <laughs> but the uh, but but the thing is, even though like the funny thing is, and you can probably attest to this, there are times where you don't make a lot of money but there's still a passion for it. When I was trying to sell model airplanes, I still loved it. And I love just talking to the people about the planes and seeing them happy and that kind of stuff. But I did, did get to a point of saying, you've bought enough airplanes now, go away. You don't need any more. The, your wife's going to crack it. You know, <laughs> how many more of the same model do you really need? Anyway, but the um, but yeah, it's, it's people like yourself and Chris Hinson and Tony Tan that give us the opportunities to have these models. And so I always am very appreciative of, People that go out and invest their own money and time to build these 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 businesses for us to benefit, and that's why even when I had the magazine, I wrote a lot about this. That you know, if the hobby starts to go quiet, the businesses are going to suffer. Then they're going to stop, and then we're going to lose choice. And as soon as we lose choice, that's it. What are we? What are we going to yep. have? We're going to have everybody's going to be flying the same thing. It's going to be so boring out of the flying
1: field. And it is it is passion from these guys. Like these guys that are in the manufacturing, none of them are making millions of dollars from it. No. They're doing it out of a the passion. They're doing it out of a love. Yeah. So, well, um, and we Hinson, and we all we all share the benefit.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and like we're probably all getting more benefit out of it than the actual people making them. When oh, you think about it. Yeah. and Chris Hinson, he he said to me, you know, he said his aim is just to be able to get to retirement, having the business and have something a bit left over for his retirement. That's literally, yeah. he's not looking at making millions and millions. He just wants to get no. to retirement and, and and have a bit left over for his retirement as well. He's off playing guitars all the time though anyway. When I met him, we spent half our time yeah, talking about yeah, music. Mate. But um, but yeah, so... He can
1: strum a guitar. Oh,
0: man. If anyone doesn't know, Chris, <laughs> Hinson, Chris Hinson from Extreme Flight is an awesome guitarist. And he plays in a Pink Floyd cover band. And I'm not joking. They are as good as the real thing. These these guys awesome uh, and not only that they put the light show on and everything and every musician in that band is a gun and and especially chris we love chris but uh they're what's the name of the? oh i should know the name of the band um anyway it's he sends me messages all the time about it and links to the band stuff like that but um absolutely phenomenal but anyway um enough about guitars and music uh we're here to talk about airplanes so yeah, the pilot RC stuff. How's that been going for you?
1: Very, very good, and it's also, I guess, allowed us to expand, you know, expand choices, including turbines. Um, Tony's building some uh, some exceptional value for money turbines. Not, you know, they're uh, very, very good for money, value for money for what they are. And typical Tony, they fly very well. You're never going to be disappointed about the way they fly. They just fly very well and i i can see that that's just going to continually improve that as um you know for a long time the competence end of the deal was just a few unique unique manufacturers that had an edge but i can see there's a lot more that's going to come on board now and it'll just continually expand
0: well it's it's interesting when i was in china a few years back guy one of the manufacturers there who shut shop now but he said to me that it was becoming more and more expensive to build balsa planes. That a couple of things: price of balsa was going up, and the yep. cost of labor. People didn't want to work with balsa with wood. Like it was hard for him to find workers that wanted to work in, you know, dusty environments and all that kind of stuff. And I would have mm-hmm. thought, hey, you're working building model airplanes would be cool. But he said it's getting so the wages are going up, the materials are going up. It's harder to find good quality balsa and stuff like that. And so he had started developing. Composite planes, all right, and he was trying to do a thirty cc extra kind of plane, and yep. I saw the prototypes and stuff like that, and they looked phenomenal. But he was still wasn't happy. He said the the the, the wings are too heavy in the composite for that size; that they probably need to go to a bolsa more traditional wing. But um, but he said one of the biggest things was that he needs four people involved in making a Bolser plane, and with the composite plane, he needed two. And oh, uh, okay, and yeah. so his labor costs would come down, and so we all sort of agree that maybe the composites of the future. And I was, I mentioned this, I think in a previous podcast about um, sort of had a a discussion, a monologue about um, what's next in the hobby. And I've been watching what this guy out of, um, he's he's originally from the Middle East, I think, but he's from, uh, he's living in Germany, Rami RC. He's got a YouTube channel and how he's making Mm -hmm. um, composite planes, like airliners, like 787 kind of stuff and Airbus A350. And he's making molds out of um, 3D printing molds. And then, laying up yep. carbon fiberglass using 3d printed molds and the molds don't last but it's almost like a one-off but i sort of pose that question is is that where we're going to end up with a lot of carbon kind of models and composite models but we know that with smaller planes you can't build a, you can't build a composite plane you know light
1: enough yeah there's right a there's a limiting factor on on how yeah. small you can go and still maintain the the, the best uh, you know, what uh, power to weight ratio um, yeah, the smaller composite planes are very hard to make light enough.
0: But what's interesting to see, though, is this shift. So a lot of the IMACers, a lot of the Freestyle Aerobatics guys who traditionally went down that comp off, krill kind of route are now moving back to bolsa and, and you look in Europe and what's happened in Europe where, you know, you'd go to the, the EXFC competition and, and the field, the entire field was either flying like a comp-af or a krill to now going and flying bolsa planes, like you know, extreme flight lasers and extras and slicks and that kind of thing, and basically extreme flight and pilot. I see probably the, the 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 major brands that we're seeing in competition now. That and I've I've asked a few Europeans that I know about that and why they made that shift, and they said they just fly lighter. They just and I think the flying style, and I blame Jace the Ace Dusia for this. And I've said this to <laughs> his face, and I keep on saying him, it's all your fault. that You started this right where the yep. more aggressive flying. And as Edo Segev said to me once, he said. We couldn't fly like Jace does. We didn't have the the equipment that enabled us to do that. The planes were heavier, and weren't yep. as snappy like they are now. But even in saying that, Chris Hinton said to me that he doesn't want he doesn't really want the planes to be much lighter because if they get too light, they just turn into kites. So there, I yep. think he's found that that you know, like with the I think with there's the, a definite sweet spot. Yeah, the Extreme Flight Extra One Hundred Four. The difference between the version one and version two was one kilo. Mm. And the, the wing was the same, bigger ailerons, but put some carbon construction in it to bring the weight down a fraction. But he said that's it; don't want to take any more weight out of it. it it'll lose its flying characteristics if you do. Yep. So, it. I think watch this space? You know, if if carbon fiber became more cost effective, I'd see probably say we'd see more of that being used. But um, you know, we'd have these. maybe we had these uh, crashable giant scale planes. You could ditch it, and oh look, it's still in one piece. So that's strong. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think I might be dreaming. <laughs> i think so actually actually just <laughs> on that point this is a question without notice what do you think the next bit of technology is that will come into aeromodelling like we you know i'm talking future stuff what do you think's going to going to going to happen mm, that's interesting i'm talking about like the, the models themselves not you know whether the hobby will survive okay. but you know from a technology perspective what do you think
1: Ooh. It's, yeah, you know what, I find it hard to imagine because you're constantly getting surprised on what stuff does happen. Um, yeah, you know, What you talked about as far as, you know, being able to crash and just pick it up and go again, possibly not that sort of thing, but certainly to the point where the techn- technology is going to not let you hurt something, it's going to stop you from doing something silly. I, I can see that happening eventually. It's, um, it's, it's already playing with some of that now, but um, because of um you know what they're doing in the UAV industry with a a whole lot of that sort of stuff that will trickle down to models um so there'll be some very clever stuff
0: I i reckon that you know what the future will be Mm
1: -hmm. exactly
0: what you said taking it to the next level which is automated flight it's going to be boring as anything but what it'll end up being like we'll have imax sequences being flown autonomously and what it will be is people be sitting at home programming their flight controllers, <laughs> they'll press start and this plane will take off, it will fly the IMAX sequence and then land and you'll be judged on your coding prowess on
1: how well you can code that, <laughs> that aircraft. Except you're not a modeler anymore, you're a UAV pilot. And, yes. Uh, yeah, don't fit the rules.
0: Yeah, but do you know what's funny? There's the With all the UAV developments the rc hobbyists are the guys behind it that are making that are, that are involved in the trials and tribulations oh, yeah. of it like um, my mate craig bavery has been on the podcast he works for a company and i said what do you do you know is it with a uav company. he goes well i'm there with a radio controller in my hand that when we launch this little uav thing that i actually fly at line of sight to make sure the thing thing can actually fly All right. and then when they move it to autonomous flight i'm actually there with the controls in my hand as a backup to flick over to me if something goes wrong and without having yep. that, and the other thing is, I said, who builds the model? He said, I do. They need people to know how to build model aircraft. I know how to build yes. model aircraft. I've been doing it for years, and he's got a passion for it. And so they, I have to buy all the bits and scratch build these planes to their specs and then go and test them, and <laughs> off, off we go. And actually, it was interesting, Joe Finnicaro who's the secretary of the VMAA down here, his background uh-huh. was in the Air Force, and he was employed to fly drones, like target drones, at, you know target ranges so that people could uh, it could shoot down model airplanes to practice shooting something that's in the air, that's moving. Yep. And that was his job yep. for years and years and years. So, you know, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that this yeah. autonomous thing, actually I watched a video the other day on YouTube of um, solar panels that you put on a wing. And I think that could come into it as well, where we've got electric-powered planes that uh, are hooked up to solar systems on the wings that have to be a bit more efficient than what they are today. But this guy had set up a whole bunch of... He'd made this little phony sort of flying wing and mounted all these solar panels on it and managed to actually overcharge the LiPo battery from the solar cells. Um <laughs> but there's a lot of your yeah, technology in that and he had automated flight routes so he just press a button and the thing would fly around figure of eights whatever he programmed in so boring as far as i'm concerned something like having the sticks in your hand and twiddling them around
1: well it's no longer modeling i mean and i guess that's yeah. You know, even when you go look look at it from a CASA point of view uh if you have aren't having direct control of the aircraft by the sticks in your hand you're no longer a modeler you're you're a uav pilot different set of rules
0: yeah, I know. Let's not get started on the rules. I'm more confused. I actually, <laughs> I actually don't know where we're at at the moment because they propose stuff and I don't know whether they've come in or not. Someone asked the question the other day and um, I, like I, said, I was talking to my brother actually who's a pilot for Virgin Airlines and not that he's flying anything at the moment, but he... Um, mm-hmm. I said, yeah. You know they say you're allowed to. F- you, you've got to be what five and a half k's or something from an airport before you can fly a model airplane. I said, where are they measuring their five and a half k's from? Is it the center of the runway? Is it the end of the runway? Is it a designated point? The control tower? Where is it? Because I'm trying to work it out. I don't know where they work it out from because my calculations are different to theirs. But he said, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway,
1: couldn't help me. I thought it, I thought it was the boundary of the uh, the airport. But well, anyway.
0: That's what I go. That's what I, I go worst case scenario, which is the fence line, right? So um, yep. that, that's, yep. that's my thing. But actually, I was doing a test the other day. There's actually a club down here in Keylor and it's three and a half Ks or something from the airport. So I think that you can actually, I've got photos of a model plane flying and in the background a plane taking off at Tullamarine Airport here in Melbourne. But um, they, I think they've got an exemption or something because they're sort of not in the flight path and got some yeah. rules and regulations to abide by. So anyway. Back to aeromodelling. Uh yeah. So the pilot RC things. Uh, the thing about pilot RC, I think I like as well, is that um, you've got extreme flight that are purely aerobatic and the extras edges, um, you know, yaks, that kind of stuff. And that's pretty much where they they play. If there's a new aerobatic model, like they've got the new Gamebird that came out, but you're generally going to be those traditional aerobatic planes where pilot RC has really moved into the jet era uh, area and you know, every episode I say that this jet thing's just gone gangbusters around the world. Everybody seems to want to have a jet now. And Pilot RC are providing a lot of those sporty kind of models. But they've, they've, they've dabbled in all sorts of different things. So
1: like you yeah, said- they've always done lots of civilian stuff as well, like yeah. you know, big decathlons and uh, Cessnas and things like that. Yeah. And I guess it's one of the things I like about it is it's different from everybody else. You know, it's it's not a- another pipe of carb or, or whatever, it's it's yeah you know, offering something a little bit different.
0: Yeah. Well, Extreme Flight did try to expand their range into some scale planes, but um, I don't know how well they've taken off. Like
1: The fundamental problem for Extreme Flight is that they are the quality end of the deal. And as soon as you start playing with, for example, like their um, Aces High Warbird series and things like that, you're competing with the Hobby King end of the deal with – and let's face it, foamies have got better and better over the years. And some of the, some, you see some of the foamies now, and you, I'm a little bit shocked. Hell, that's a foamy. It looks fantastic, you know. Um, and the, the flying's got better, um, but it's a very cheap end of the deal. Whereas Extreme Flight are making it a quality end of the deal. It's hard to compete there. I mean, their models are exceptional, and the, and the guys that have them love them, but you're paying more for what looks like the same thing. Um, you don't necessarily see the differences that easily. So yeah, it's always a struggle.
0: Um, Chris Hinton at Extreme Flight said to me that the aim that they had with those models is, he said, a lot of say the warbirds actually don't fly that that well, and so their aim was to take their learnings of what they've done with aerobatic planes, extreme flight planes, and bring some of that into the warbird stuff, like you know the 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 airfalls that they use and things like that. So what you end mm-hmm. up getting is a a warbird that is as close as scale to possible but they might make some they might deviate in some slight areas that you wouldn't even notice like you know they had had their fock wolf and and so what he was saying is you're going to buy a a scale model that flies really really well and i asked a few guys when i was in china a few years back they had these a group of guys brought these fock wolves out the extreme flight fockles and and they all said, yeah, they're phenomenal. They're like almost like pattern planes. They're that good. But yeah, you pay extra for it. And I get it. You know, if you're a Warbird guy, you're going to go and buy a Warbird, whether it's this brand or that brand. And the flying is almost secondary. Whereas maybe, yeah, maybe it's it's, it's it's too much, you know, to have a great flying, great looking Warbird that costs twice as much as, you know, some other brand or something like that. Not going to work. But. Yeah.
1: In, in, interestingly enough on that, I, I actually did get some feedback from a customer that it, he didn't like his extreme flight Warbird that much because it flew too well. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was used to his Warbirds that were difficult to handle and you had to land them right and you had to – this thing just flew itself. He didn't like that. <laughs> I thought it was great for some people, but, yeah, yeah, that was him, you know. So, yeah, no, interesting about it. You know, the, the quality of the models is great.
0: And I think, you know, nowadays – and uh, you, know, I don't, you don't need to answer this, but I know that if anybody says to me what model planes – um, you know, I'm into aerobatics, what should I buy? And I say, you've got two brands, Pilot RC and Extreme Flight. Buy either, you're not going to go wrong with either one. You're going to love each one. Right? And actually, a friend, of, a friend of mine bought an Extreme Flight plane from you and I said to him, you wait until you fly. I said, just wait. He, extra, uh, my turning point in the hobby started with a 48-inch extra Extreme Flight. that I bought secondhand yep. off a bloke down here and I went, oh my God, this plane is just, it was a, only a 48-inch wingspan. This is unbelievable. I sold other planes and at that point in time, I went. I'm only buying good planes. That's it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But there I, is a difference.
0: I have to be honest with you though, because at one point in time we were competitors. When I I started bringing the 3D hobby shop planes, and and you know why I did that? Did I ever tell you why I started doing it? I was I was oh, sure. I was looking for a 30cc size plane, aerobatic plane, and I had the 78 inch Extreme Flight Extra was one option, and a Pilot yep. RC their 30cc size planes. And I'd bought this Volkswagen Amarok and I I didn't have a trailer or anything. I needed a plane that could fit in the tray of the ute. And the Uh 78-inch extra was too long. And (laughs) the Pilot RC, I'd placed an order, but it wasn't going to come for months and months and months. And in the meantime, I stumbled across 3D Hobby Shop planes and all the the reviews about them and whatever. I thought, look, I'm looking for something different to do. I'll go and bring the, the, uh, I'll see if I can bring some of those in and do something on the side. But as we know, when 3D Hobby Shop merged with extreme flight which i think was a very very good move how quick do you reckon i was on the phone to you to say hey ian here take, take it off me <laughs> <laughs> I, I think i was very quick because i because i always thought you know my this is what my thinking behind that was i don't i don't want to leave people in the lurch it was a be like when i had the magazine and the subscribers that had paid me money the last thing i wanted to do is shut the magazine and then owe people like they paid money for a product that I never was able to give them. So I kept the, yep. I kept, I saved all the subscriber money until the end and then paid them back. Well, most of them actually donated to charity and I gave money to the Red Cross around the bushfire kind of thing. But with, yep. that was my issue with the 3D Hobby Shop stuff is that I just didn't want to leave these guys who became friends in the lurch. And there was no other person that was going to do it better than than Ian Howard at DA. And so off it went and... And I think that was best for everybody. I think that you know, it was good for me. And it
1: was well, good for you. In the end, it, it in the end, um, like I must admit, when uh, we first heard the announcement that um, they were merging, I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting with Andrew. How's this going to work out? And then, yeah, we had a conversation that was, it worked out quite well. Like we were both going to be happy. But in the end, because the the the, the factory that was involved in uh, the three D hobby shop, you know, losing their relationship with uh, Extreme flight, it it sort of left it, everyone in, in the lurch when it comes to three D hobby shop parts and things like that. That was that was sad. That was there yeah. was nothing we could do about it.
0: Yeah, that was that was the bad point. But I think what I think really at ground level, at customer level, they were happy to move to Extreme Flight and buy Extreme Flight planes. Like totally we really happy ah, to do that. So, yeah. And it was well. The other brand that you do have is the 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 AJ Aircraft as well. That sort of mm-hmm. has yep. come into it uh, uh, as well. How's that fairing? Because again, they're they're awesome planes as well. Um, the is there? A, they're not as well known, I suppose, as the AJ aircraft. But have you had
1: some interest in those planes as well? It's interesting. I mean, we um, yeah, the first shipment we got in, we had a lot of interest in some of the models and zero interest in in, in others. Yeah, usual story. Trying to pick out w- what people are gonna like or not like. Um, again, the f- that's the same factory that was doing three D hobby shop. And that's now changed ownership. I don't know whether you're aware of that. No, but, I didn't uh, know. Johnson's no longer there. Yeah, he sold his share of the business. And so, and with the whole COVID thing happening, you know, we've just not worked particularly hard at that brand at the moment. We're waiting to see how the dust settles and then we'll pick up everything and start moving along later with it. It's, um, so it's, look, as far as the quality of the, the kids go, get great feedback. I mean, I had a customer, a long-term customer that picked one up the other day, and he wanted to look at it first because he was a local guy. I said, yeah, okay. And we started to unpack it. And he said, oh, this is really well packed. I'll just take it home. Yeah, give it to me. But, yeah, he came back to me and he said, like, I was stunned. He said, I cannot believe the quality of this. It really is very high quality. So it's, it's another good choice for us all out there in, yeah, in the quality end of the deal. Same story, similar sort of pricing as well. Right? Yes. It doesn't come cheap. You know, a $500, um, you know, 30cc extra versus a $1,000 30cc extra, there is a difference. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know what I say to people? Put your head in, I say to people, look, put your head in the fuselage and look backwards towards the tail and go and have a look at the work that's involved. Like how they know how to strengthen tail areas and all that kind of stuff is that what you're investing in is, is the smarts. And we know from, say, Extreme Flight and the amount of engineering work that happens at the factory to build the models that way is it and then they've mm. like um a tony tan at pilot rc i saw the prototype slick that's now what is it a 104 103 or something slick
1: 103 yeah yeah yep.
0: and he i said to him, tony how long does it take you to make a prototype he said it takes us a month one person an entire month to make the prototype and he said to me i said well when when do you think you're going to have the model finished he said i need six six more months of testing like and this was yeah and that was um november Early November last year, and it's really just mm-hmm. come out now. I think. Have you, did you've just got it? Are you getting a Pilot RC container in, uh, or did you just get there's, one there's in?
1: There's one, one being manufactured and filled as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Are you getting any of the new slicks? Oh, I,
0: so.
1: I would imagine so. I can't, I'm not 100% yeah. certain. Oh, I hope you do. Know because uh, Mark, my offside has been organizing the pilot shipment. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, but um, but yeah, but when you think about it, the the product's in development for, what, a year
1: before it actually comes to light. Yeah. And these things aren't scratched out on a napkin and then somebody goes to the back of the workshop and puts it together. Everything is CAD done. Um, yeah, tooling is made. There's a lot of work involved in making a serious airplane. Do you know what? There's another side to this that people are unaware of. The amount What's of that?
0: components that go into manufacturing to build a model airplane is massive. Okay, you've got to have Mm. balsa, right? You've got to have plywood, but then you have to make sure that you've got the hinges, the wheels, the undercarriage, the the, the moulds for the cowl made, all these screws and bolts and wing bolts, canopies, all that kind of stuff. Everything has to be at the factory at the right time to be able to make a run of planes. So prior to doing a run, all the purchasing departments are working out exactly how many of each component do they need before they start. Now, okay, other manufacturers have to do this, but we just see the end product and forget how many mm. people are involved. There's actually a good video. <laughs> there's a video online of, um, of um, manufacturing the Pilot RC factory, and yes. there's another one the Compaf guys, I think they got some some guys out of Germany. I think did a did a tour of the Compaf factory, and that's when you start to appreciate how much goes into making these models. And the oh, only way nice. the only way you can make them cheaper is to take shortcuts, use rubbishy gear in it and make yep. them really quickly. And then
1: you're done. My visit to the comp Arf factory was mind blowing. Like it was just like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> um, it's just enormous numbers of staff working multiple shifts. Um, it's, there's a lot of work in producing that stuff. Yeah.
0: yeah you know, it definitely is and like, even with the, the molded and the molded models, um, you know, the maintenance of just the molds. You know, the, the cost of mm. building a mold is massive. You know, so yeah, I can see, I can see where it is. And look, we all know that, you know, in the we've we've down here in Australia, we've suffered from pretty bad exchange rate with the US dollar and everything's transacted in US dollars um in the hobby industry pretty much. And, you know, back when I was selling 3D hobby shop planes, I was fortunate that the the, the US dollar was almost a parody. Um, but by the time I'd stopped making the aeroplanes, the pure cost had gone up by twenty percent, just on the back of the exchange rate changing. Um, and, oh yeah. and yeah. you know, yep. you and I know that you can't sit there and carry twenty percent because. Most of the time, you're not even making 20% margin on the sale of the airplane, let alone having room to soak it all up. So if anyone who says to me that, oh, DA's making a fortune and ripping us all off, load of rubbish, I'll tell you, I can tell you that firsthand experience
1: of being in the industry. Well, you've seen some of the raw costs on, involved in some of this stuff. yeah. Like, and particularly, like if you look at Extreme Flight in there, smaller, like the 48, 52, 60-inch yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty shocking if you look at the difference between wholesale and retail price. There's nothing in it, yeah, absolutely yeah, nothing. Yeah. Barely think... covers the freight to get here, sort of thing. And and
0: and um, uh, don't mention the freight problem we've got in Australia and how how costly it is to get these massive models around.
1: It's just, it's just ah, that's frustrating. You know, it costs me more to get a container from Brisbane Port to uh, you know, a suburb ten k's away than it does from uh, the factory in China to Brisbane Port. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: Now, I want to talk a bit about DA engines because you are the dealer, um, you know, and and of course involve the ignition modules. Let's talk about the ignition modules. To start off with, and we'll get into the motors. But um, so you've been making these ignition modules for years, and and I'm I'm so oh, like I'm so proud that you, that they're made in Australia by you. That I released that video, which I I literally found the video that I shot with you like years ago, and thought, nah, this has got to get a couple out. Of years ago, yeah, yeah. I said, it's got to get out because it's such a good story, and I'm and I'm honestly proud that. And I tell everyone, you know, those ignitions are made in Australia. And um so you're actually involved. Okay, you, you use your word. You tell me what is in what what is involved in producing the ignitions? Where does it start and
1: where do you end? Yeah. So the the design, the guys in the US, yeah, completely left up to me. Like you design it and and just produce something that works and, and works well. So that's what we did. Um you know, the, the original ignition module has been going for you know, 20 years now and hasn't had a whole lot of changes in design. There's obviously been some changes because of you know, supply chain and componentry and things like that being available or not. Um, but the new ignition ignition modules, like the one on the DA35, that was a whole new ballgame. We designed that from the ground up to, to meet a new set of goals and eventually it'll transfer across to some of the other modules and some of the new motors that are coming online
0: yeah i I asked you this question many years ago about that da35 and and um you know what was changing and we've seen some subtle changes from the the average punt would notice that you know some of the ignition modules can handle high voltages so we can run two cell lipos and stuff into them but uh, what do you yep. think is the future for ignition modules even though it's only one tiny component you know what what would you what would you love to see in you know ignition modules be able to do
1: well I guess one of the goals is always to make make them, uh, yeah, very small and very light. Um, and some of the electronics is allowing us to get, you know, some shrinky happening. But I always say to people uh, when it comes to making ignition modules, um, you can have, uh, yeah, small and light, you can have reliable and you can have cheap. <laughs> um, pick two. Um, you can't have them all. Um, and so, so it's, it's always been a, a thing that I I'd, I'd, would love to shrink them down further and further. Make them a less significant part of the whole build. Um, Desert aircraft have always been passionate about the grams on every engine, you know, to the point of using titanium where possible, and to 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 save a few grams here and there to to ultimately produce a better product. So that yeah, I've got to do my end of the deal as well, you know, as far as keeping the module light. So you design
0: it, and then of course you've got a team of uh, of people working uh, downstairs in your office making the modules and mm-hmm. are they printed circuit boards in them or mm. yeah so, so but have you got some printing the circuit boards for you and then you're assembling or so for the blank
1: boards um yeah that we've got somebody doing those for us and we we com- fit the components to them um for the newest stuff which is all yeah you know, surface mount and yeah you know, later technology uh it's just not practical for us to have uh, surface mounting equipment for the small volume that we do so the the people that make the printer circuit board also pop the components on there for us we just do some finishing off there's some some components that uh i insist on fitting myself <laughs> um, like literally myself which is like the coils and things because of the way they've got to be fitted to be reliable uh we let we won't let the factory do that and yeah we fit the software inside the microchip and things like that because we don't let that outside our our own house
0: yeah and are you testing them as well
1: yeah absolutely so they they're all put on a, a test every everyone
0: yeah so there you go so uh, i've seen the manufacturing um your manufacturing facility and and seen the the detail that you go to and can 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 see where the reliability comes from it's it's the attention to the detail from the design through the manufacturing and so and you know the you know what the good thing is and and you know desert aircraft doesn't need to tell everybody how great you are the fact is that they keep on coming back to you and you're the only manufacturer of them so you're doing something right
1: yeah yeah uh, and you know we've we've always been a bit chuffed about the fact that um you know in some of the uav applications there are other brand motors they used but they choose to buy our ignition system and put them on there um, so we yeah it's it's always been a positive and there's several um there's even a, uh, an australian company that's well into making uh, you know fuel injection systems and things like that for uavs and uh smaller engines like that and they choose to use our ignition module on oh, their really? system
0: i was going to ask you yeah. about the efi thing do you ever think EFI will ever come into the modeling space
1: eventually yes it's it's that whole volume you know, increasing to get costs down um that as the technology gets better it gets cheaper to make uh, eventually it will yes but um uh, it, it it'll be awesome actually and, and I must admit it's always been one of you know, desert aircraft's goals is to eventually produce motors that there's no user no customer adjustments on it you just plug your fuel line on plug your power system in and um start it and go fly there's no need to touch anything just the same as your car sort of thing you know you don't tune your car um just everything just isn't that called the turbine <laughs> <laughs> but I, pretty I, much yeah uh, <laughs> but by, by by absolute has to be because if <laughs> Yeah. yeah it's got to be that way otherwise it won't run. Yeah,
0: that's right. Well I I I'm, I'd love to see if I because the only well, well the 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 if you do tune your engine well you should just leave it. Like it should continue to run, as Brian Winch always say. We don't tune our, our whippersnipper snipper motors; they're tuned once, and we just leave them, forget them. Like people yep. If it's, with if it's got
1: quality quality components, um, if you're finding yourself that you're you know reaching for the needles all the time, there's something else wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I say to my customers all the time now: if you had to tune that that needle in quarter of a turn uh, to get it to run, stop and go looking because there's something else wrong. Like yeah, you know, the, the carburetors are that repeatable that. Uh, it's rare that you're going to need to do that. There's something else wrong. And, um, if with quality component, that's the case. If you've got if you've got rubbish components, well, yeah, then you can spend a lot of time you know, chasing what the hell's going on. Carburetors aren't consistent, things like that.
0: Well, I um, I I've, I've got a DA120 one of my models, and it was a second-hand motor that I got oh, years ago, and I had I hadn't run run it for years. I literally ran it for the first time about four or five months ago. And this thing sat idle with no fuel going through it for four years, maybe. Mm-hmm. It started within three flips of the of the prop. Actually, yeah, it started with the the, the throttle linkage. I hadn't done the throttle linkage; it popped the popped out or something. The throttle linkage, and it still started. And I'm sitting there on the throttle, trying to you know raise the throttle, and the thing <laughs> is sitting at idle. And I'm thinking, man started, and then I worked out, oh, the the, I'd, the, the, the throttle travel was out, and it popped the whole connection off, and I, I thought, oh, I'm an idiot, but I thought, how good is this motor? This thing's been sitting there dry as anything, and it just popped within three flips of the thing. Like, oh. oh, now I know what people say, you know, about the DA engines, and, and it was really smooth, but how reliable, like, of course, you're going to tell me they've been reliable, but honestly, you're servicing uh, you've sold a lot of da engines here in australia as being the, the sole distributor but you also repair them you know how reliable are are the da engines
1: well i guess you know i've never serviced any other brands or had very little to do with it, any other brands except for many years ago so it's not yeah you know, i can't really compare them but i do do a lot of engine repairs and the vast majority of it is because unfortunately somebody's decked something or had something go wrong um it's not like we get yeah you know, lots of engines in for repairs for you know, that have just you know, failed for no apparent reason of course it does happen yeah you know, things go wrong um you know, yeah, yeah bearings can fail yeah you, know, you you can have issues like that that happen but, uh, that's why you have you know warranty that's why you have backup and service and I've got to say you know dealing with desert aircraft you know they're the best in the business when it comes to to warranty and backup and service like but their their whole attitude is yeah, you know, fix first, get the customer going, ask questions later. Like you know, the important thing is to, to to make that desert aircraft engine happy again and make it purr away. Now, I've
0: got this I've got this theory that when someone gets onto a forum or Facebook or something and starts asking about uh, oil that you use in a motor, you know they're running out of things to talk about. But when it comes to DA motors, <laughs> they, the, the DA recommend Redline oil, right, and there's all these theories out there. Oh, they've got to deal with red line and all this kind of stuff. What is your experience with motors running various different types of oil red line versus others, right? So I only hear straight from the horse's mouth of what the difference is. And should we be using red line like DA says?
1: Yeah, look, uh, firstly, there's certainly no deal between red line and, and, uh, and desert aircraft, either here or in the U.S., um, The guys from the US started using the Redline and noticed immediately uh, it was performing better, and engines were running cooler than other oils they previously tried. And I always say to people, Redline isn't the best oil for every engine in the world. That's that's not necessarily the case. But it really works well for these engines. Yeah, it may not be the best oil for your two-stroke motorbike. Uh, Yeah, maybe Motul is great for that, but our experience has shown that in our particular engines the engines run cooler uh, and are much happier on a redline oil so that's why we recommend it um, i wish i could recommend something that was half the price but <laughs> it's not like there are some close seconds and it's not the only oil that works but it is the best one that we found engines are happiest when they're running on redline
0: what about when you pull the motors apart that have been using redline versus say another oil is there any difference in
1: carbon buildup or anything like that there can be, but with a 2 straight motor, there's a lot of variables. Um, you know how, how well the engine is tuned, how you know propped or under-propped or over-propped or well-propped the engine is, um, and how well it's cooled will have an impact on those sort of things. Um, you can have the best oil in, oil uh, in the world inside your engine, but if it's running too hot, it's running too hot. You know, rings are going to stick. Um, but for like for like installations where we've had or we've even had guys that have gone from using brand Z oil and moved to using red line there has been a noticeable change in the build-up the 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 carbon build-up in the engine is certainly much softer like it can be wiped away um yeah from the point of view that yeah there's no hard carbon build-up when the engine's tuned and cooled well with red line it just runs very clean
0: yeah okay Now you're doing most of the repairs aren't you on the motors
1: I like am. You yeah. personally,
0: you know, so you've been working with the motors for a long, long time. Do you ever, do you <laughs> get you ever bored of it? You know, here comes another motor. <laughs> they look the same inside.
1: Well, it was interesting with the whole COVID thing. Um, initially, when uh, everyone got locked down, suddenly. Everyone thought it was a great idea to send their motor into be service because it's, it's been nothing wrong with it. But I can't fly it at the moment, so you might as well just check it over and, and you know, go over it for me. So we, just, we got inundated. It was like, oh no! Actually,
0: tell us a bit about the impact of COVID on your business. Yeah, what's it been?
1: Well, you know, we went initially from being particularly nervous to um, at, at the moment we're still thinking, what, what were we ever worried about? Yeah, you know, we have been busier than we ever have been. The biggest impact we've had is supply chain. We just cannot get a lot of product. Even simple things like uh Zap CA, you know, we couldn't get any for a month. It, it just got dried up all supplies. But uh from a business point of view, we've been really busy because I think there's less choices for people to spend their money on. You can't go for a trip overseas, you, you can't go for it, you know, do your traveling. Uh, so people are spending more money on that sort of hobby. I think they're locked down at home, you know, tapping their fingers. What the hell am I going to do with myself? All right, I'll get another model and I'll build that. So we, we've been particularly busy.
0: Now, one of the things I want to talk about is um this changing in engine sizes, which I find fascinating, which then <laughs> drives a change in a uh, plane design as well. No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. Is it the other no, way around no, no. You reckon? I'm, I'm the, I'm the engine guy, so I'm blaming the aircraft guys. Okay, so the aircraft guys keep changing the size, and then they, then they say to us, "Can't you build a bigger engine? Why don't you build a smaller model?"
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we have the 30 cc, the 35 cc, the 40 cc, the 50 cc, the 60 cc, the 70, the 75, the 80. The 100, the 110, the 120, 150, 170, 200, blah, 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 and beyond, right? These new yep. angles, I thought we were going to stabilize at 60cc for that size model, but now we've got, is it a twin 70 or twin 80? What is it? What's DA got? Twin twin 70, yeah. Twin 70. And so now everyone buys the 60cc size model, the 91-inch kind of aerobatic plane, and they want to put the 70cc in. We want more and more more power, and again, mm-hmm. it's Jace Ducia's fault because he started this aggressive flying thing and wanted more power. But do you think it's ever going to end? I've noticed that GP motors are doing a, a a 78cc. It's like everyone's going to be like doing the DA 122.5cc motor next year.
1: <laughs> What's going on? Uh, it, it's always been an interesting thing. And I guess you know, the whole you know, marketing and, and sales has changed over the years because I can remember going back... You know, 10 years when the likes of, you know, the extreme flights and desert aircraft and all those sort of guys would go to five or six trade shows a year throughout America, you know, Toledo being one of them. And they get together and, and, and talk there. And, and Dave from um, DA has often said to me that, uh, you know, they'd be saying, oh, well, we've got this new model coming out. It's, it's three inches bigger than the last one. So we need a slightly bigger engine. And it was like, no, no, just design a new model that's a couple of inches smaller, and then we we won't need a new engine. And yeah, they've constantly played uh, against each other, like yeah, you know, satisfying each other's market sort of thing. It's it's always been interesting. I don't know where it's going to end. You know, I'm, I guess from yeah, you know, for desert aircraft, a reasonable proportion of their business is is not the hobby industry, simply from the point of view that um, they, they have to do something else to to survive. It's 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 always going to be very tough. You know, with american labor rates and made in an america like genuinely made in america uh engine to um make, make enough money you know, in the hobby industry so they certainly have other uh, other areas which drive engine development you know the, the da215 which is you know their big twin that they released a little while ago yeah and there, there's no question that that was developed for some other application but it's a yeah certainly usable in a hobby but um uh, yeah you had other motivating factors and We'll see a lot of those sort of things, I think, over the years, smaller and larger because of uh, you know, other projects that are driving it.
0: Yeah. Well, we benefit from that. So it's um that's, that's a positive, I reckon. Yeah. Now, if yeah. you don't fly very much nowadays because I don't think you've got the time to. But um, when you were building models, did you enjoy building models or do you see yourself more as a flyer?
1: Oh, I love building um i love scratch building uh, particularly when it came to the composites that was yeah you know, that was a challenge because it was it was something different um i've got i must admit still a shed full of actual kits like you know, box of sticks type kits that i do plan to you know I, I do want to build and i do want to get back to i guess what happened was i turned my hobby into my business and then you know so, to some extent a day down at the flying field became a, another day at work uh, so it got less enjoyable, but I have no doubt I'll certainly get back into it. Um, it's just everybody's time poor, so I, I just you know, choose not to to do much modelling uh, down at the field anymore, but um, the passion's still there. I definitely want to do it. There's, th- there's projects that I've got you know, on my list that, uh, yeah, that are on the bucket list. I'm certainly going to do them um, when I've got more time.
0: And then, of course, there is that other hobby that we share as well, which is what's that hobby? Ian, you can you can tell us what is it? <laughs> mountain biking. Mountain biking. Uh, we have these old-age old mountain bikers out there.
1: But you've fallen in love with it, haven't you? Well, yeah. Um, and from like I don't know when I first when we first met, but for most of my adult life I was obese and always struggled with my weight. And I woke up one day and thought, I gotta do something about this. And a little while after that, I thought, I wouldn't mind giving mountain biking a try. And I suddenly found that an exercise that I enjoyed doing. So you want to do it more. So yeah. it, it keeps me lean, it keeps me fit, and it's fun. And there's just for me, there's nothing like being out in the middle of the bush on your mountain bike. It's it's just very relaxing. Um, you can't think of anything else because you're concentrating on the trail ahead of you. you you, know, you can't be distracted. It's, it's just a, a fantastic relaxation and exercise at the same time.
0: Now, if anyone was interested in starting a hobby business, what would you tell them?
1: <laughs> well, if you look around at those that are, that are in it and continue to be in it, they, they do it for a passion. Um, so, yeah, if, you've got to have the passion. If you, if you want to do it for the money, I uh, have a hunt around for something else to do um yeah you're satisfying a passion and you know, that because that's that's got to be your motivating factor
0: well all that's uh, again just anyone out there is listening just appreciate the hobby businesses because none of them are making a fortune now big final question is the one that i ask everybody and that has been that is what has been your favorite model to date
1: and don't say mountain oh. bike. i
0: know you got a new mountain bike
1: <laughs> pivot switchblade. blade <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I guess because it was some driving passion, and because it was scratch built from the ground up and building um, molds and things, my ultimate buy, I guess, was my favourite plane because of what went when it was involved in making it. Not because it was the best flying aircraft that I had. Yeah, a long way from it, but. I guess that was favorite and it was a show plane it was yeah I could show off of that plane and uh, make me make myself look good big yeah, show just a mug I look I look good cause, yeah just a big show off yeah yeah good on you well uh, it, it, it
0: it's true though it, sometimes it's the effort that you go to that makes that that plane more special than anything else and and like it's been mm, said time absolutely. and time again in this podcast people will say It's not that it was the greatest plane, but it was what that plane meant at that particular point in time, whether it be, it was a model that I went to the world championships with, but it didn't fly that well there, but it was just, it represented something. And that model to you, like imagine the the effort to build the mold from scratch and then to see the finished product. Yeah, I'd turn around and go, that was just phenomenal. And you'd probably never do that again in your life, would you? You know, <laughs> you go and build a mould and off you go. But um a big thank you, Ian. Yep. All the best. Yep. Uh good to see that you handling this code thing. Uh plenty more stuff to come from DA. You've got you've got deliveries coming. You've got Extreme Flight order coming in, I think.
1: It's actually arrived, yep. Yeah. So some some happy customers are already starting to get their models and uh as I said to you uh, earlier off air when I said have you been reading our email? because yeah, there's an email going out tomorrow yeah, letting everyone know that some extreme flight kits have arrived and are on the website. Yeah,
0: excellent. Well, well done and don't forget, what's the web address again for Desert Aircraft
1: Australia? Desertaircraft.com.au
0: Yeah, get on there. Go and have a look and see what they've got. They'll deliver Australia-wide. I'm not getting paid to say this but uh, that's okay. I'm, Proud supporter of DA Australia. And also, yes, whilst I got you, a big thank you for your support with Flat RC magazine from day dot. You were there, and you were there from the first edition to the very last edition. And I will be forever grateful, and I owe you a lot for that. And I, I appreciate it. Even though I didn't make any money out of the magazine, I appreciate
1: well, everybody that gave me money to make it happen. Well, it goes along with the hobby business. You didn't actually get into it to make money, did you? Because No, not yeah. really. I thought yeah, it would just can, be a little you, bit better than what it was. <laughs> but but you know what? Insane well, It was okay. Like, it was the change we needed. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out, but it was certainly the change we needed.
0: Big thank you, Ian. Thanks for joining me on this podcast and all the best in the future.
1: No worries, man. Stay safe and all the best to you and the family.
0: About to leave, Another great episode of the Flat Out RC podcast. And a big thank you to Ian Howard once again for joining me. I uh, really enjoy having a chat with me and they keep on rolling along I thought I was going to be struggling for some guests a, a few weeks ago and I've got a few banked up and a few more lined up as well so we'll continue rolling with them uh, you know we are what well, I started this 27 weeks ago or something like that and we've managed to produce a podcast every week and the main reason is because I really enjoy doing it I actually do love having a chat with people about uh, their life and the hobby and and it doesn't matter whether they're a famous person, like we've had the Gurno Brookmans, the uh, Ali Machinchis, the Jace Ducey's. We've had those kind of guys on the um, on the podcast, but also bringing you some down to earth modelers. We've got another great one uh, coming next week, all the way from remote Australia, Northern Territory. So, trying to get across all the states, plenty lined up, plenty more to come. So, thanks once again. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC Podcast and connect with us on our Instagram. And our Facebook pages as well. And of course YouTube. Uh I can't wait to get let loose. We've got a whole bunch of videos that we want to shoot around some models and that kind of thing. So please stay tuned on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and, and subscribe. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back next week. Take my hand, we'll make it